Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So one of the big landmines I think you need to avoid when you go to prepare your business to sell is getting too romanced by what is essentially a phishing offer to buy your business. And what do I mean by phishing offer? Essentially, a phishing offer is where an acquirer will make an offer to buy your business and it's really just bait getting you excited enough at the potential of an acquisition that they share, that you share with them details about their business that you wouldn't ordinarily want to share. And that's exactly the situation John Bowen found himself in. He received a $37 million offer to buy his business, which on the outset looked almost too good to be true. Turned out it was. They were really just trying to understand competitively how he was running his business. Now, there's some ways, and John really does a great job of detailing them, that you can sort of pick out or sniff out this strategy being used by a potential quote-unquote acquirer uh, and to tell you those three strategies and share really the whole story of Bowen's exit uh, I'll let John do it himself John Bowen welcome to built to sell radio well, thank you for having me, John. You know, we do a little preamble before, and it was so interesting to know we know so many of the same same folks, Vern, uh, Joe Polish, Dan Sullivan. So it's it's uh, it's great to actually connect with you and, and, and learn a little bit about this company, RWB. Well, and it's great to connect with you because I've enjoyed reading your books and, uh, you know, just you've made a, a difference in my life and uh, many of my clients. Oh, that's great to hear. So tell me a little bit about RWB. You guys were in the wealth management sp- space. Is that right? Yeah, for really for my whole life, I've been in the financial advice and uh, wealth management. And and what we, I had been a, a good financial advisor, kind of right place, right time, uh, being in Silicon Valley and watching it grow. And we had uh, kind of found a formula that we were able to grow our business. We grew it to a couple billion dollars in assets under management. Uh, We leveraged it a bit by working with other advisors as well. And so we were, you know, solidly profitable. We we weren't quite, we weren't planning on selling the business. Uh, You know, it's kind of the classic stuff you talk about, John, is, you know, I mean, I wish I knew what I, know now when I sold, but uh, yeah, we weren't planning on selling. Some things happened and, uh, you know, a great profitable business that I, I would have stayed forever in. I was CEO. I had two other partners. Uh, one had, they, they were both older than I, one, uh, had left the business already, but maintained his equity interest. Another was kind of in that transition period. And, uh, all of a sudden, uh, somebody came up and offered us a bunch of money. So how did the the three of you guys uh, become partners? Was it, did you all start the Three Musketeers together? Did it evolve over time where one guy bought in over time? Like, how did that work? Well, it started with, there. They were the, the other two were actually started the firm. And I joined uh, probably a couple of years after they started it. And I joined as a financial advisor. I had no desire to be anything but a financial advisor. I wanted to you know, be one of the top financial advisors, but deliver a great client experience. Didn't have any visions of building a great big business or anything. And uh, lo and behold, I had some early success. And uh, uh, the two, I didn't ask for a partnership. They uh, offered and uh, uh, put up an attractive package to buy in. So I, I took a, them up on it, and we each at that time had uh, a one-third interest each. And how do you value? Uh, how did you value a, a financial services firm back then? What was the what was the formula you were using? 
Well, it, and it's really, um, it's evolved. You know, there's so many rules of thumb, John, that, you know, and they're almost always wrong because it doesn't include all the factors. But typically, you know, advisory practices are selling in about a two times uh, revenue uh, or, you know, less or more, depending on growth, what's going on, that type of thing. And so you were offered the opportunity to buy in. Did you, did you did you cut a check or did you buy in over time through like how did you? I mean, I guess you were a young guy at the you know this would have been a big check to write. Yeah, and it was and it was a so we went ahead and uh, I had had some success early on as well. So I mean, I had a little bit of money, so you know, a little bit of cash, kind of a I don't remember the exact deal right now. Uh, but it was, you know, we put in uh, a, a dollar amount. I'm, I'm guessing it was a quarter down, 20, 25% down, and the rest paid over uh, four or five years. Got it. And so how did you go from being, uh, if you will, the kind of new guy on the block or the junior partner, although not in equity, but certainly in terms of seniority with the other two being, they, they founded it. How did you go from that to be being CEO? Well, I, I think that one of the things I learned very quickly was, that, you know, in the financial advice, like every other business, is you can do so many different things. And as you start having more success, the opportunity to lose focus and do all these one-off deals are, it's, you know, it's great in every business, but it's even easier when you don't have uh, inventory with financials. Uh, you, can, you can really make the business very dysfunctional very quickly. And I saw the need for systems. And I saw basically two systems that I wanted to create. One was you know, the, nailing a client experience. And the second was having that steady stream of pre-qualified, pre-endorsed affluent clients you know, from a niche market that we were working in, the, the, the technology players in kind of a, a focused area. And, and once we, you know, they saw that that was working really, really well, uh, I got offered the partnership, and then as it continued to go, you know, just um, you know, we each had different skill sets. I was more kind of the a rainmaker or marketing uh, type. You know, we we're all good financial advisors. We had another one that was a CPA that was you know the financial advisor, and then we had one that was really you know kind of the glue to bring all the everybody together. Got it. And so they saw in you someone that could bring that process to the business and, and promoted you to be CEO. Was it was it titular in nature? I mean, were you basically holding the title of CEO, but but in principle, it was the three of you guys making key decisions together? Or, or were you really the CEO in a Christmas tree kind of organization where you were making the kind of key decisions yourself? I think it, you know, it started out more the three of us, and it was kind of almost a coin flip. And then it evolved to where you know, it was a classic uh, leadership uh, role. Got it. And so, how did how did the the sale come up? I mean, you were building this business. What was the triggering event that made you think, okay, well, maybe we will sell this thing? Well, and it, what was happening? There really wasn't any desire to sell, and you know, we we looked at it. It was generating a nice cash flow. We we're taking a you know a, a very good salaries, and then the EBITDA not normalizing for comp was about a, a million six. So you know, distributions were great, and you know, good quality of life, all that stuff. And we actually liked what we were doing. You know, we we're making a big difference with clients. And and what we saw though is the ability to scale up a bit with other advisors. We needed to create a mutual fund so that we could you know price part of our solution in the mutual fund. It would be more efficient tax-wise, it would be more efficient for the advisors working with us and for the clients 
that would ultimately work with us, the end users of our solutions. And you know, the, the challenge was we didn't have the expertise nor the capital to, we wanted to create a family of funds almost immediately. And so we, we started with the idea that we were gonna go out and raise some capital. And uh, you know, not surprisingly, it, it wasn't planned at the time. We had a number of firms that said, hey, we don't really wanna just uh, you know, provide some capital from a financial standpoint, because we were trying to separate it into almost a separate entity. They were doing, hey, we want a piece of the whole thing. And then as they did the due diligence, they said, you know what, let's just be clear, we want the whole thing. And uh, you know, one of the partners was already out and he uh, you know, loved the idea. Another one, uh, it was kind of basically two out of three wanted to do it. I had a little more than the third because I was leading the firm at that time, but uh, not enough to have control. And all of a sudden we found we were going from raising a little bit of capital to uh, uh, we're for sale. So that's really fascinating because I think a, a lot of entrepreneurs uh, go through that process where they say, uh, you know, maybe we'll raise a little bit of capital here to get to it, get to the next level. And, and, but in your case, you didn't, it doesn't sound like you went, you, you went to traditional, you know, uh, angel investors, for example, it sounds like you went to strategics to raise capital. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We just thought we would get, you know, we were in the, I mean, we had, were managing a couple billion dollars. So we had a lot of angels as clients. So we could have gone that route, but we really wanted to go strategic. We were thinking, you know, how could we scale this up and make it a big, you know, part, a major player in the financial services industry. So we went out and I mean, one of the you know, largest banks in the, the world uh, was one of the conversations we we're having. They were one of the first to try to wine and dine us and then put a, you know, we're kind of talking about how we might do this. And all of a sudden we've got a term sheet, uh, uh, with $37 million attached to it. And it was kind of like, huh, you know what, this, this might be something, there might be something here, maybe we should sell it. So you get one of these conversations is one of these big banks, and they offer you $37 million for the company. Um, did, you, did you just go down the route and, and, and negotiate with them? Or did you take that as a sign there was, there was more appetite among the, and, and go further afield and, and shop for deals broader than just the one bank? Well, and thinking, you know, we're not, we weren't a technology firm, so there's not a huge multiple. It's really a personal service firm, but we were growing at a steady rate, about 35%. So we, we had something that was working really well. And, you know, our EBITDA is 1.6 and you're getting an offer for 37. So you're going, you know, maybe we should take this. And so we, we started uh, doing the deal and, and uh, John, I don't know how much experience you have working with uh, you know, that small a company working with a global player, but I would advise against it. Uh, it's just, you know, I think uh, one time they sent out almost as many attorneys as we had employees uh, doing due diligence. And it's just, they had a copy of everything uh, by the end. And, and it was a, it was one of those where grow, growing a fast growing business, they were taking all kinds of time, you know, we were starting to be wonder whether we were going to ever close it or not. And then um, I decided I need some help. And we, we made the mistake that we were financial professionals, uh, we were very good at what we were doing. And we had helped clients through uh, doing deals, you know, on the tax side and kind of the financial assets and the deployment, but not on, you know, the, the deal and the emotional part that goes on. And how do you keep focus and keep the doors, you know, the business growing that's providing this value? And 
So we were fortunate to be introduced to an investment banker who's become a really good friend and actually a partner in my current business. And he kind of looked at the deal and, you know, you can imagine we had been working on this for months and he looked at it and within about uh, 15 minutes, he might even say an hour, but 15 minutes, he goes, there is no way you're ever going to close this deal. And that was probably the most eye opening thing that I had, John, that, you know, uh, we had now gotten to the point that all three of us had agreed to sell and we'd invest this time, energy and money with this one group. And, you know, he said, it's just, you really can't, they're on a fishing, uh, they want to understand this business. We were in kind of a new, fast-growing part of the industry, and we were one of the early pioneers, and they were very interested in it and unlikely to close. And why did they? Why did he know that you were unlikely to close? What were the What were the signals? Well, they, well what was interesting, you know, I'm I'm waving the term sheet around at this point, and I said, you know, geez, within two weeks they got us a term sheet, you know, and I, again, I hadn't. I've always worked on the independent side of the. Uh, uh, firm. So it was, it was kind of a, like a wow that all of a sudden we got this term sheet and they're, you know, they're really active. And he goes, John, they've not done one thing past the term sheet. You know, they, they're, there is no action whatsoever to really do kind of the, um, the focus due diligence that would end up with the definitive agreement. And, uh, and it was dragging on. It, there weren't any issues. It was just kind of constantly trying to get more and more information, but more about how the business ran rather than traditional, you know, uh, deal due diligence. And what would be an example of a due, deal due diligence that they were not getting from you? You know, they, they really didn't spend much time on the financial modeling <laughs> at all. It was more on, you know, the scope, of, the scale of the business, the opportunities, what were the tools that we were using? How were we differentiating ourselves? So they were you know, good strategic questions, but they weren't looking at all on the financial side, the contract part, that type of thing. Got it. Because this is a key, key lesson for our listeners, because a lot of uh, acquirers, as you know, uh, you know, some are genuine and some, you know, really do want to understand the businesses that they're they're about to buy. Others use a term sheet as a as a way to get underneath the sheet of your company with no intention to actually acquire it. So knowing and, and sniffing out, you know, these things is, is really helpful for our listeners. So one thing they didn't do, John, is they didn't look at uh, the contracts and understand, you know, whether they would transfer in through the ownership. They didn't do a lot of financial modeling um, so that they could understand, you know, how how valuable you know your company would be in their hands. Uh, what else did did you did you did they not do that made you or your M and A friend uh, cautious? Well, they really you know it was kind of interesting. They weren't uh, they were very interested in meeting our strategic partners and our vendors, but not so interested in really you know I mean what we wanted to do is. You know, they would spend a fair amount of time wanting and dine us, had a lot of good wine and dinners and all that. And you know, we're based in Silicon Valley. They're uh, based in New York. And, you know, the, it's just they would be more than happy to send out somebody who was not very senior, uh, but they always wanted us to fly back for all these meetings to present to this group, that group and so on. And, you know, what happened uh 
when uh, John Stone, who's now my partner, who heads the M&A group in our financial advisor uh, coaching consulting practice, uh, John goes, you know, John, you got to just stop this. You know, you know you've got to give them the, you know, if you don't have the agenda, <laughs> they have it and you don't know where they're going to take you. So we uh, took took it back. We we had not prepared for sale. We didn't have you know anything approaching a classic book or the financial modeling to to justify a pricing. So we went and started building that out. And you know we we were planning on going to an auction at this point, but it become a little bit more known than we'd like. Uh, you know the the bank. It was kind of funny. We we're in San, San Jose. So the code name was Warwick. Uh, do you know the way to uh, San Jose? Does anyone know the way to San Jose? Uh, uh, Warwick song and and but somehow it leaked out, and all of a sudden we had a, you know a whole bunch of people starting to come and talking with us, and uh, we had at that time professionalized now and really got really clear what we thought the valuation was, what it would take to do a deal. And a firm that I'd never heard of uh, called us from Canada and uh, immediately did really what this large bank did. Uh, They were one, they've been acquired, but one of the eighth largest financial service firms in Canada. And uh, very, a deal oriented guy that had done a number of deals, a young guy, uh, very, had already done the homework on us and very quickly was able to put together a term sheet. Um, I'm not even sure it was two weeks. And uh, I can still remember sitting down with John and I say, you know, uh, unsolicited term sheet, here it is. He took a look at it and he says, you know, if we want to close this, we probably could do it in six weeks to lock it up. And the difference in just seeing the focus, you know, we're working with deal professionals, that probably another big warning sign is you're if you're working with the people who are more on the strategy side, then the deal side, um, that's, you know, it's very clear. And uh, these guys were professional acquirers. They'd never done an acquisition in the U.S. They wanted us for strategic purposes. Uh, they made not only a, a good offer for the firm, but also for the people involved in the company who wanted to stay uh, a, a very attractive offer. And, uh, you know, we were able to put it together very quickly. Great, great lessons. And again, more, I mean, this is such juicy stuff, John. I appreciate you kind of going into such detail because for our listeners to know, you know, there's in a, in a company that acquires another business that the acquirer has two divisions, right? There's the corporate development team that are the, doing the deal. And then there's the line of business team. They're the, you know, the marketing people and the directors and so forth. Yeah. Uh, if, if you, if the corporate development people are not involved in driving the process, uh, that's another warning sign that, that, uh, that something's amok. Uh, so great, great advice. So the, the, the this is finally the, the eighth largest company you're referring to. This Canadian company was Asante Wealth Management. Is that is that correct? That's correct. Got it. And so you actually did consummate the deal with Asante. I, I understand. Is that right? Yes. And what do they end up paying? Uh, they ended up paying twenty five million. Uh, Fifteen million was in upfront money, and the balance was in earnout. Got it. Okay. And so you know that's. Well, a tremendous uh, multiple of EBITDA. It looks like uh, ten on the on the on the on the uh, the downstroke uh, against your one point six in EBITDA, um, and then you've got this, the twenty five million. The, the the extra ten was in an earnout. Is that right? That's that's correct. 
Got it. Okay. Uh, but but south of what the big bank had offered, how did you kind of square the 37 million term sheet that, that John Stone looked at uh, and said, this is not going to happen against the ultimate uh, sale price of 15? Were you disappointed or did what, what was your sense there? Well, we we came in and we you know, had also uh, putting the book together. We had a professional, uh, one of the industry leaders, come in and said that the firm was worth around eleven to twelve million, and we had a number of offers uh, in and about the fifteen million, you know, combination of cash, uh, equity, and uh, earnout. So this was uh, a pretty good offer, very very quickly, and then with a firm that was fast growing and provided an awful lot of opportunity. So it really did a pretty good job of matching everything that we were looking to accomplish. And it allowed us to continue to serve our clients well. Uh, this was a group that was very interested in the wealth management. This was, you know, we ended up being their core business in the U.S. Got it. And one of the big reasons we see companies acquiring others is to get that geographic sort of foothold. Because Asante was mostly Canadian, right? And they didn't yeah, have they were Yeah, they were exclusively Canadian at the time. Got it. You became their beachhead in the United States. Yes. Got it. Okay. And then talk about the earnout. So the, that is, was that tied to uh, uh, an earnings goal that you had in the future or your tenure staying with the company or what was that? It was a, a little of, it was a you know, number of factors, but it was predominantly financial and staying with the company. And the, uh, you know, one of the other things I learned along the way, John, is be careful of what financial projections you show because uh, certainly not only in the deal I did, but I was involved in several 28 acquisitions. I was part of the team that we did with Asante that you know, we, we use whatever you gave us the financial model, we use to uh, you know, develop earnouts. And you know, you know, so many of us get caught up in pricing. It's, it's not so much the price that you're getting, it's the terms and conditions along the way. And fortunately, we had a very fast growing. We had a great business. It's continued to grow. Um, you know, today we were at two billion. Today it's grown to about fourteen, fifteen billion dollars in uh, management. It just the systems in place. It's continued to grow almost at the exactly the same rate that we had uh, when we were growing it. And are you still involved in the business? Uh, you know, interesting enough, one of my partners who had left uh, later on came back and bought it back uh, when uh, we went. Uh, the most of the assets were in Canada, and uh, one of the uh, largest mutual funds, the second largest mutual fund, made an offer, and they decided they didn't want the U.S. assets. So there became kind of a shopping. I I have a very successful business doing what I'm doing. I decided not to uh, make an offer. One of my partners did, and uh, you know, ended up paying uh, uh, several times over what we sold it for because it had grown, and it was you know what we had put in place was extremely profitable. And uh, he continues as chairman. As a matter of fact, one of the earliest calls he made was at, called me and asked me if I'd come and help put out you know together the marketing plan for the new business. Well, that's that's a. A tip of the hat to you and your expertise in that area. That's great. So um, 
when you talk about, you know, and you've, you've done now this, uh, you've been involved in 28 deals, uh, you've seen it on both sides. What other tips uh, can, you, can you share with us related to the deal term? So everybody focuses on the headline number, but it, to your own point, you're saying, hey, you guys, there's, there's more to it than just the headline number. It's, it's the deal term. So what are the things you see entrepreneurs missing? Well, I think one of the big things is whether you're staying or not. Um, you know, the, and if you're staying, uh, particularly in a murder type situation where you're still going to be a partner, you know, so often you're, you're, it's sold as a merger of equals. But if you're not sure of your role, it's an acquisition. <laughs> I just want to be clear on that. And I just saw it over and over again. And we, we do you know, consulting on M&A and the financial uh, advisory wealth management uh, side. And we just see that over and over there. And it's repeated, uh, you know, and our, our clients tell us and their clients. And so uh, that would be very important. I'd also, I, I kind of mentioned, but I think this is so critical to have um, somebody professional. Uh, the, the thing that's surprised, I'm a pretty dispassionate guy, John, and, you know, and, and, and have uh, enjoyed a fair amount of success, kind of right place, right time, and so on. I couldn't believe the amount of emotion that came up in selling the baby. And in not only myself, but my partners, the employees and everything else that you need to have that professional guidance along the way. And the earlier you do it, the better. And then one of the things, I mean, in our new business, we work and we help entrepreneurs maximize uh, their personal wealth. We see so many uh, people building their businesses and they never build their personal wealth outside of it. And they're not proactive. And one of the biggest ways of building is ultimately when you sell your business. Well, if you're not thoughtful on how you structure the business ahead of time, you can leave millions on the table. And so, you know, involving the investment banker, but even before that, having the right, you know, we use the term personal chief financial officer. Be very clear, you know, the average, uh, once you do a deal, very few partners really do want to stay. You know, don't sign a five-year uh, uh, non-compete or, you know, any, you want to be able to stay in the industry. Uh, I, after I left, I had a two year deal with them two years and one day I decided to take a year off. I thought I was going to love taking a year off. I love entrepreneurship about six months in my wife said, you got to start another company. I mean, you can't handle this. I don't want to go out to lunch with you anymore. So, you know, it's, it's again, thinking through that, John, the, the strategy, getting the right professional team in place, Putting the deal book together, uh, being very clear on you know who are the ideal people. Uh, certainly, you know from a seller standpoint, an auction is so much better if you've got something valuable than you know just having the first guy that comes across the transom. Uh, sometimes that first guy can be good, but a lot of times it's like the first one that approached me. A fishing exercise. John, you know, while we have you, I mean, we don't usually do this on, on, on the show, but I think it, you know, it, it's rare that we've got someone of your expertise, uh, in, in, you know, deep financial knowledge. Uh, so talk to us about, let's assume we've got an American entrepreneur who is running a business. They think they will sell, uh, for $5 million. Um, what can they do from a structuring perspective, trusts, uh, man, you know, uh, uh, tax avoidance strategies, legal tax avoidance strategy, what can they do today to ensure they keep most of that $5 million? 
Well, I, th- I think, you know, there's so many different ways, you know, what, what I would do is do it a little bit differently. And what, what I would look at John is, you know, I'd get clear on what my goals are. Where do I want to go from here? I mean, we had somebody just recently um, that was selling a subsidiary and he was uh, up there in age a bit, not, uh, not, uh, you know, 60 year old, uh, I guess it's not that old. I, I just turned 60, <laughs> but he's 60 years old. And he, uh, you know, wanted to stay running the other part of the business. Uh, his son, one of his sons really wanted to stay active in the business. The other, uh, didn't and had a, they were very, the family was big and, you know, a charitable pursuit, but hadn't been, been so busy in the business side and, you know, this was a classic example. We go, okay, well, how do we want to set this up? And what we ended up, you know, the kind of the structure, if you think through, and I'll just do it as a generic case study is before selling that subsidiary, we placed it in a charitable trust, a charitable remainder trust and provided, you know, a nice income uh, for 20 years uh, instead of being taxable. None of this, uh, the 6 million plus was taxable. And it actually provided about a 10% of it as a deduction, roughly 600,000. And then in turn, what we did is we had that at the end of the 20 year period fund the private foundation that the other son that who wasn't gonna stay in the business was going to run. And what was great about that is we were able to generate um, really a replacement asset because of the income coming out and so the family was whole, the charitable foundation was set up and everybody got to run and it took care of the family interests. And the reason why I'm giving that as an example, it's a little complicated and there's more to it than that we can go over here. But what you want to do is you really want to meet with an advisor who has an expert team, you know, really access to a family office type network of professionals who deal with deals like this you know, and ideally about five years before you're going to do the deal so that you have that structure in place and you, you got clear what the vision is. You, it's much like building a business. You know, don't think about the tax issues first. Think about building the business and then, OK, what can we do to mitigate the taxes? Our not too silent partner we all have no matter where we are in the world. And then the same with this is what do we want to accomplish? What are, what's the vision for the family, for the stakeholders? What are the goals? What do we need to do to achieve that? What can we do given today's structure to maximize that opportunity? And there's just so many. I mean, we can go into ESOPs. We can go into, you know, different types of multiple corporate entities that you can restructure and so on. But you got to do it ahead of time. You can't do it the day of the deal. Great suggestions. So, You mentioned emotions and the emotional impact of selling. Maybe walk us through uh, those weeks around, you know, during the due diligence that Asante was doing. You had a term sheet. You were fairly confident that it was going to close. Get us inside your head. What were some of the emotions that you were going through, some of the dynamics of the relationships with your partners? Yeah. So, you know, it was, it was one, all of a sudden we had to run the business and somebody had to be charged of doing the deal. And it ended up being me as CEO. And all of a sudden, something that's an important asset to all of us and our baby that we had all worked on. Um, and we had sold businesses together before. So it's, you know, this is uh, none had been quite as big as this one. And this was kind of a foundation one that we all loved. And, you know, initially we're you know excited with the big bank price coming in, a little disappointed. Then we 
kind of got our arms around what was real. And then, you know, we've got the term sheet, we've got a working deal. And then, you know, what happens is there's a difference between the term sheet and the definitive agreements. And, you know, as you're doing due diligence, you know, the, things change, you know, different items. And, you know, and fortunately, uh, Asante and the principal there, Marty, Marty Weinberg, was, you know, really good at not doing one item at a time. I've just seen it so often. But as these items come out, even in a group um, that you have to address, you know, that emotion of, okay, you know, you're doing high fives at the, the you're going to sell, then all of a sudden now this is becoming really hard and it's dragging on a bit. And then when you do due diligence, and I can still remember flying up to Winnipeg, uh, they were based in Winnipeg and Toronto, uh, being, uh, uh, John, you're in Toronto now, and uh, Winnipeg, I mean, I love Toronto. I To this day, I had to fly up for two years every month to Winnipeg. Uh, you know, I'm not sure why. Uh, you know, it's a night, everybody's friendly, but it's awful cold. And having grown up in upstate New York and gone to undergraduate in Buffalo, it's still damn cold. And, uh, uh, you know, and I, we had private jets and I'm flying up and it's still, it was, it was a major issue. And the, the idea that, you know, on the due diligence, the first time I flew in and seeing all the ice, I flew in in February, you should never do a deal with anybody in Winnipeg. Uh, if you're buying, you know, in February, I got there and I think it was minus 20 degrees. And I almost, if there had been a flight that I could have just hopped on and just go back, I probably would have. And, but, you know, and, and then just the meetings and the different people, the emotions of the principals and, you know, um, on the other side where different people have different ideas of what's going to happen. Uh, you know, and it, particularly if you're saying, you know, the governance part becomes really a big deal. You know, I, I, I remember I had a, uh, a conversation, this is a few years ago now, with a corporate lawyer. And I asked him, so this is a lawyer who does, you know, M&A deals. And I said, what proportion of the time uh, is, is there um, a discount between the original letter of intent that is offered by a buyer and the, the final share purchase agreement? Uh, you know, if if you had a hundred deals, what proportion would you say there's some dilution? There's some you know there's some uh, fall off in the two numbers. And he looked at me, I took a sip of his coffee, and said, "Is there a number higher than a hundred percent?" Yeah, because even if we, I, I've been involved where we didn't lower the price, but the terms and condition and the earnouts and you know the allocations. I, I would have said I would have been shocked if he's a real deal guy that it wasn't a hundred percent. He he did me one better, you know, it was higher than one percent, a hundred percent. But I mean, it, it does, and you know, this is where the emotion, and you have one, you know, if you're a smart firm, you have one person in charge of running it, but you're bringing it back to your partners, and it's constantly changing, and we got to address these things and so on, and and you know, you're selling the baby, and yeah, you know, we're. You know, and, and some of the people aren't going to stay with you as you're doing this. And then there's that thought, oh, you're getting offered, you know, this great comp package in lieu of equity package and, you know, this and that. And, and so uh, there's a lot of trust involved. And, you know, when there's that much trust involved in that many moving parts, you know, the emotional curve, the three of us, I can still remember shaking hands right in the beginning. We can go through it, John, just run with this. Bring it back, you know. Let's discuss it weekly. Let's close it to the end, where we were hardly talking to each other. 
Were you able to repair that relationship by the end? Uh, we, matter of fact, we just, uh, a few months ago, we all got together and celebrated a milestone, you know, in years that we had been working together. And uh, uh, one I play golf with on occasion and the other, really, it's still not repaired. I mean, we'd get together, you know, only kind of when forced and we're, we're in the same community. Huh. That, uh, that's a tough lesson and, uh, and, and a cautionary one, I guess. Um, John, you've been grateful, uh, gracious with your time, and, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, where do people reach you if they want to reach out? Yeah, one of the things I'd suggest, John, uh, you know, we, we have done a lot of research with uh, some of the friends that you mentioned, Dan Sullivan of Strategic Coach, Joe Polish of Genius Network, and just recently did a study of 3,500 uh, successful entrepreneurs. And we have some of the findings. There's a book we wrote called The State of the Entrepreneur that's available at aesnation.com, as well as we've got kind of a scorecard uh, that Dan and I put together of you know the mindset, the entrepreneurial drivers on this maximum personal wealth that are just so important to your audience as they're thinking through, okay, I've got this really valuable asset they're going to sell. So if they, they can go uh, to asnation.com, uh, download the freebies and you know get the weekly newsletter that will help them on the maximize their personal wealth. Fantastic. John, just to be clear, uh, it is the letter A and the letter S, Nation, or is it A? No, I'm sorry. Uh, it's AES Nation, so it's Accelerating Entrepreneurial Success. Well, we found, John, nobody could spell entrepreneurial, <laughs> so we, we got AESNation.com as the domain, and it's kind of stuck there. Fantastic. Well. So you heard it there. Go ahead and download the freebies at AESNation.com. John Bowen, thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. Wish you the best of success. You too. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L 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 Thanks for listening.